Hello and thank you for watching Kingdom's Cornerstone News. This is a newscast created for citizens of the kingdom that will have no end. The kingdom Jesus Christ will rule when he returns at the new age. I'm Jamie Kiever. Today is Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. Winter is coming in Afghanistan, and as many as 20 million Afghans are not prepared to survive. And with no economy to speak of, families are not able to just buy supplies needed to stay warm and eat during the bitter cold months. There is a free fall now in the economy, in the whole social fabric of Afghanistan. We will have to struggle to save lives this winter. Very many people will perish. They will not have food. They will not be able even uh, to, to, uh, to sustain the cold that is coming in six, seven weeks from now. We are, it's a race against the clock and against death. There are growing calls for aid to be contingent on education being available to girls. Despite promises to be inclusive and open, the Taliban have yet to allow girls back to school. They've cut local media and returned to brutal practices like publicly hanging dead bodies in city squares. On to Israel, where the new prime minister appealed to the international community on Monday to stand together against Iran. Let me tell you some news. Just this year, Iran made operational a new deadly terror unit, a startup, swarms of killer UAVs armed with lethal weapons that can attack any place at any time. They plan to blanket the skies of the Middle East with this lethal force. Iran has already used these deadly UAVs called Shahid-136 to attack Saudi Arabia, American targets in Iraq, civilian ships at sea, most recently killing a Brit and a Romanian. Iran plans to arm its proxies in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon with hundreds and later on thousands of these deadly UAVs. So you can ignore it, but experience tells us that what starts in the Middle East doesn't stop there. In his maiden speech to the United Nations General Assembly, Naftali Bennett accused Tehran of continuing to develop a nuclear weapon and threatened Israel would act alone if the world does not take action. And here in the United States, opposing the decision made by a panel of CDC advisors, scientists tasked with determining the safety of the COVID booster, the director of the CDC rejected the panel's recommendation and did her own thing. At the conclusion of the meeting, the advisory committee had a robust discussion about whether boosters should be available for those at high risk of COVID because of occupational or institutional risk. People like healthcare workers, teachers, frontline responders, essential workers, and those in congregate settings. The result of their discussion was a close vote. Had I been in the room and on the committee, I would have voted yes. And that is reflected in my resulting decision to allow the use of Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 booster dose for those 18 and older at high risk of COVID-19 exposure and transmission because of occupational and institutional exposure. As CDC director, it's my job to recognize where our actions can have the greatest impact. In a pandemic, we most often take steps with the intention to do the greatest good, even in an uncertain environment. And that is what I'm doing with these recommendations. 
And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how science works these days. The executive branch announces boosters for all, except they made this announcement before the government agency tasked with ensuring its safety has, you know, determined it's safe. They eventually decide not to recommend it for all, but the director of that agency decides to trump the entire process that she somehow knows better than a panel of scientists and overrules their decision. Science at its finest. This mandate is not backed by science. Just like this example, it's based on politics. And now, career military officers and enlisted will be kicked out of the service if they refuse this vaccine. Doctors, nurses, healthcare workers who for decades have served people will be kicked out cold, unemployed, if they don't take this vaccine. This executive branch has grabbed far, far too much power and has grossly overstepped. And I only hope the lives that will be ruined because of this can be somehow reversed or reconciled with the new administration. But for now, Biden's mandate affects 50,000 by White House estimates who work in healthcare facilities that receive Medicaid or Medicare funding. Biden has said all those healthcare workers, no exceptions, must be vaccinated and hospitals and healthcare facilities in New York are anticipating problems. According to an article in the Epic Times that we'll be sure to link to, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul is prepared to activate the National Guard who have medical training to replace those healthcare workers. So get the vaccine or be fired. This is what this Democrat-led state and the federal government are saying to people who up to now paid taxes to build and support this nation. And these liberals are ready for you to walk to lose your job, lose your freedoms. What happens when the unvaccinated can't fly? This couldn't be more anti-American. The vaccine is not 100% effective. Even Pfizer says its effectiveness wanes as time goes on and still the federal government is content to destroy you, to destroy the unvaccinated if they don't comply. This is George Orwell type stuff. And speaking of George Orwell, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton announced he's leading a coalition of 10 states filing an amicus brief with the 11th Court, Circuit Court of Appeals in support of Florida's law that regulates censorship by big tech social media platforms. This according to an article in the Epic Times, which of course we'll link to in the description, but Florida's SB 7072 law allows Floridians to take legal action when big tech deplatforms them for inconsistent standards. The bill was signed into law in May, but two internet trade groups filed a lawsuit and were granted a temporary injunction. Texas signed into law a similar bill earlier this month, which protects citizens of Texas from inconsistent censorship standards. The Texas bill prevents social media companies with more than 50 million monthly users from banning people based on political beliefs or for discrimination. As more and more states legalize marijuana, the question of whether or not consuming the mind-altering substance recreationally or even for medical purposes is coming up more and more among Christian circles. Some argue alcohol is exponentially worse than marijuana. Some will say there's nothing wrong with it at all, and still others will argue that even if it's legal, it's always going to be a sin. Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Todd Miles. He's a Western Seminary theology professor and author. He recently wrote the book Cannabis and the Christian, which I read over the weekend. It was a fascinating read. Dr. Miles, thank you so much for calling in to talk to us about this. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. 
First, I just want to thank you for this incredibly well thought out book on a topic I think a lot of people are interested in, some maybe too afraid to ask. Can you start by telling us the story behind what got you to write the book in the first place? Yes, I, I honestly never thought that I would write such a book. Uh, but shortly after recreational marijuana was legalized in the state of Washington. Now, I live in Portland, Oregon, but we're right across the mighty Columbia from the state of Washington. Uh, like the day after it was legalized, uh, we had a member of our church come to the leadership and ask, hey, uh, now that now that pot's legal, is it OK if I go across the river and, and, and smoke some? Is, it, will that be OK? And we realized that the normal answer that we would have given, you know, even two days earlier, it no longer applied, which was, no, of course you can't because it's illegal. Uh, that, that no longer obtained. And so we had to, dare I say, start thinking like Christians on, on this topic. Um, I, I, I jotted a few thoughts down. A couple months later, I was at a pastor's conference where I annually did a talk on you know, theological or ethical hot topics that pastors need to think about. And, and, and I, I, I introduced the, the topic at kind of an advertising thing and the, 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 the opening exercises of the conference and, and said, hey, I'm going to do a talk on on uh, the pastor and pot and and everybody laughed everybody laughed and uh, you know up until the time that i actually gave that that breakout session people would come up to me and say hey did you think about deacon and the doobie or you know how about trinity and tree bible and blood you know whatever and and i was and i thought man uh, no one's going to show up for this. It's just a big joke. But but when it came time for the actual breakout session, it was essentially a plenary session. Everybody came. Uh, there were people standing outside in the hallway. And it, I, I realized at that point, wow, um, people are hungry uh, for information on this because it, this has been thrust into the laps of, of the church. Uh, since then, I've gone around and talked Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, California, uh, on, on on this very topic, I, I I had to add a medical marijuana talk as well because because um, because people come and listen about recreational marijuana and they're very defensive about their medical use and confused about it and such and um, and, and then I, I eventually turned it into a book and Broadman Holman was kind enough to publish it. Yeah, and it was a fantastic book. I loved it. Uh, at one point, you say the perception of risk from smoking marijuana is on the decline, while marijuana use itself is on the incline. Why is this problematic? And if you would, briefly discuss what you think is the most risky thing about using marijuana that most people just aren't tracking on. Yeah, so as, as recreational marijuana gets it is legalized in more and more states. And, and if you're in a state where recreational marijuana is not legal, just, just wait. Uh, it's, it's only a matter of time. Um, uh, medical marijuana is legal in most states now. Uh, and, and so, so uh, of course, um, the use of marijuana is, is on the upswing. Uh, w one thing that the marijuana lobby does is uh, in order to um, uh, justify the legalization as they say, hey, if, if it's legal, then then we can better control the use by minors. I, that, that has demonstrably not been the case um, uh, it, it, by, by all measurables. Uh, marijuana use is increasing amongst all age groups, uh, male and female. And, 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 and so 
you have this increase in in availability. You also have a very powerful lobby um, where there is, quite frankly, a lot of misinformation about marijuana and and its adverse effects. Uh, the adverse effects are denied, and a whole bunch of positive benefits are put forward, uh, most of which have, have no basis in, in any sort of clinical study at all. And, and so, uh, so, so marijuana use is going up, and, and, and part of the reason for that is because people don't understand the risks involved. And, and just to, 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 to highlight three, for example, um, uh, it, it is, it, it's been said over and over again, marijuana is not addictive. Marijuana is not addictive. Well, in point of fact, it, it is. It is. Um, now, it is not as addictive as many other substances that, that have a, a grip on, on uh, the, at least people in America, uh, for sure. Uh, nicotine is more addictive. Caffeine is more addictive. Opioids are way more addictive. Alcohol is more addictive. But not as addictive is not the same thing as not addictive. Um, about one in 10 adult regular users will develop a clinical addiction to marijuana. A, a regular user would be someone who uses three to four times a week. One in 10 will develop a clinical addiction. That means that, that, that you uh, have such a dependency upon it that it's, it's shaping your brain and you are willing to risk harm to yourself and to those around you in order to feed that addiction. Okay, so that's one in 10. If you're a teenage regular user, it, uh, th that number goes up to 16, 17% of teenage regular users, which brings, brings me to uh, big problem number two. Uh, the, the use by minors is deeply problematic because THC, which is the psychoactive component, one of the psychoactive components in, in, in marijuana, uh, impedes brain development. It, it stunts the development uh, of the brain. Um, and, and the problem is, is that you don't get it back. You don't get it back. Uh, I, I saw one study that, that says that uh, – a, a, a clinician had found as much as an eight point drop in IQ based on regular marijuana use. And, 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 and when the average IQ is 100, always by definition, and the range is typically like 80 to 120, an eight point drop is significant. And, and the problem is, is you don't get it back. You don't get it back. Um, and this is problematic because uh, the, the female brain is, is fully developed, in, you know, early 20s, 2021, 20, somewhere around there. The male brain, 25, 26, 27 years old. Um, now, after your brain is fully developed, THC, it might not make you your, your intellectual best at the moment, but it's not going to have deleterious effects on, on your intelligence or IQ. But it will it will impede development of the brain, uh, not just in brain, but but uh, not just impede, but stunt it, and you don't get it back. Hmm. And then, uh, so 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 teenage use of marijuana is deeply problematic to me. And and then third, uh, th there's a gr there's growing evidence. It's 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 like um, it's got to the point where it's it's almost indisputable uh, that there is a link between mental illness and and marijuana use, um, particularly amongst those who have a genetic predisposition to mental illness. Um, the studies are, 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 are just, I, I mean, it, it, in my mind, it, it, it's a certainty at this point that, uh, that regular marijuana use will, will enhance 
the onset of uh, or speed up the, the onset of, of mental illness. And, and, and there's growing evidence that even those who don't have a genetic predisposition toward it, that it, uh, the, the, the people run the risk of, uh, of developing uh, some form of schizophrenic mental illness through marijuana use. Um, that, the, those risks are, are just not out there or they are flat out denied. In, in fact, a lot of people think if you're mentally ill, you probably should use marijuana because it will mellow you out when it's, it's probably one of the worst things that you can do for mental illness. Wow. Um, Dr. Miles, I mean, you really surprised me. In the book, you gave a lot of factual scientific information, negative effects as well as positive and therapeutic effects of marijuana. And then later, looking at applying biblical principles to this factual information, you really leave a lot up to the reader to make their own conclusions. My favorite part where you did this was towards the end, where you talk about Jesus uh, rejecting the wine and myrrh right before he was about to be crucified. Can you talk a bit more about this and what you're trying as the author to do here? Yeah, and so just to, to run through a number of things that you mentioned there, uh, th th there are some footnotes in this book for sure. Uh, but I, I wanted people to know that I'm not just making naked assertions here, but, 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 but I have actual medical journals to back up every assertion that I make about uh, the, the risks and benefits of, uh, of, of marijuana use. Uh, because I think it's important that we understand that if we're going to make wise decisions about it, either recreational use or medical use, we have to know what are the actual benefits and what are the actual risks. Um, and, and then I'm, I'm really hesitant to bind people's consciences where the Bible does not bind people's consciences, uh, right? Uh, so uh, now, I, I do think that uh, that intoxication through marijuana is a sin. Maybe we could talk about how I do that uh, later. Uh, uh, so I'm I'm happy to bind people's consciences there because I think that that God has done that. Um, but 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 outside of that, what I want is for people to think like Christians and to make wise decisions. Um, now, now, when it comes to to Jesus on the cross, uh, rejecting that the wine mixed with myrrh, uh, why did he do that? Well, th this this is interesting. So, so historically, uh, apparently, th th there was this this group of ladies who had this ministry to the crucified, where they would give a a, a form of narcotic that would just take a little bit of the edge off. It was a mercy ministry uh, to, uh, to, to help someone who was suffering in this most excruciating forms of, uh, of execution. Um, when Jesus was offered that, he refused it. Now, now why? <laughs> why did he do that? Now, what I don't want to do is say, well, Jesus uh, refused a psychoactive drug, so therefore no one should use anesthesia when they go in to get their gallbladder removed or, you know, or something like that, right? Uh, uh, I think that would be totally irresponsible. Uh, but, but I also, as a follower of Christ, talking uh, mainly to other followers of Christ, shouldn't we at least consider what Jesus did? What, why? Why did he refuse a, a psychoactive drug, a, a, a kind of primitive narcotic, um, when he was facing the cross? Could it be that, that he wanted to face the suffering he was about to go through with a clear mind. And again, I'm, I'm not prescribing that for, for everyone. I'm just throwing it out there as a data point. Heavens, if, if I go in for surgery, I want to be knocked out. 
and and and, and I hope they give me pain killing drugs afterwards. Right? Now, I'm totally fine with with mind altering drugs to deal with acute pain. Uh, I, I don't see any problems biblically with that at all. I, I, I think risk of, uh, of addiction and such are, 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 are fairly minimal at that point. Um, nevertheless, we're followers of Jesus. Why did he do this? Why did he do that? And so I, I just want to present that question. And maybe because I don't even know why he, why he did it. But, but as a follower of Christ, I'm, I'm pretty interested in, in wanting to know why. And as a follower of Christ, I, 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 I want to follow him. I, I want to be like him. So is, is there anything that I can emulate in this that, that is helpful to, to, to both myself and others? Now, I know the book was about marijuana, but I feel like a lot of what you say applies to alcohol as well. I certainly felt convicted at times in the book, and that's because one reoccurring theme that kept coming up is how we're called to be sober-minded. Can you talk a bit about what being sober-minded is in a biblical context? Yeah, so the, the, the New Testament authors who, who are writing in Greek, uh, especially the apostles, they, they enjoin sober-mindedness uh, upon us. That, that, that is, they, they tell us, they, they command us, uh, uh, 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, okay, as a follower of Jesus, one of Jesus' apostles, writing by inspiration of the Spirit, has commanded us to be sober-minded. I have to do it. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, it, here's what it doesn't mean. Don't be drunk. <laughs> Uh, so, and, and what I mean by that it is, it, like, in order to be sober-minded, all I have to do is avoid intoxication and I'll be sober-minded. No, sober-minded is way more than just avoiding intoxication. It, it, it has to do with, with how we look at the world. It, it, it has to do with being self-controlled. It, it has to do with being intentional and and, and realistic uh, about our assessment of the world and the situations. And it has to do with, with being ready for action, being ready for action. Um, you know, the uh, Christians face difficulties. It, it, it's not easy being a Christian. Uh, we face the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and it takes everything that we have, and of course, that's not sufficient in and of itself at all. It takes the very grace of God to, to bring about certainly regeneration, but, but also sanctification, day by day sanctification. Um, it, takes, it takes everything that we have uh, be, because we face so many different foes, world, the flesh, and the devil, to, to mention the top three. And so, when, when Peter and, and Paul also twice call the Christian to be sober-minded, they're saying, it, it's, it seems to me this, it's, it, it's not easy following Christ. You have a lot running against you. There's a, you have a lot of enemies. And so, you've got to do what you can to be ready. You have to be intentional in your thinking. You have to be ready for action. You have to approach the world realistically. With hope and joy, to be sure, but recognizing that that, that we face deadly foes, and so, yeah, I, I, of course, avoid intoxication. It's so much more. Uh, being sober-minded is so much more than being sober-minded. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, being sober-minded is so much more than being than avoiding intoxication. But it's not less. It's not less. You you, you can't be sober-minded if you're wasted. Right. 
What about alcohol, though? Jesus drank wine. It was part of the Last Supper. He created wine from water at the wedding for his first miracle. Alcohol has negative effects, uh, negative effects on the body, as well as some positive effects, we're told. What's the difference between alcohol and marijuana? Yeah, uh, so uh, there are significant differences between the two, both biblically and, and chemically. And I think it's important that, that we understand those differences. Uh, I believe that, that, that alcohol is a gift from God, a, a generous gift from a good God. I, I also think that the cannabis is a generous gift from, from a very good God as well. Uh, but uh, we have to use them faithfully and appropriately. I mean, there, there are lots of things that are good gifts. Um, heavens, all of sin is based on the misuse of something that, that good that God has given us. Satan hasn't created anything. He just perverts and distorts. Uh, the example I often use is arsenic is a good gift from a generous God. That doesn't mean I'm going to drink it, right? And so, uh, when, when it comes to alcohol, it's, it's different biblically. There, there are passages that celebrate the use of wine. Um, wine gladdens the heart. It's used throughout the scriptures in, 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 in festivals and in religious rites, Lord's Supper, for example. Um, and, 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 and alcohol works a certain way uh, to, to bring about its, its psychoactive uh, effects. The, uh, the, the cannabis plant is a different sort of plant, uh, substance. Uh, it works different chemically than alcohol does. Uh, but a similarity would be this, that the Lord forbids in Scripture intoxication through alcohol because it, it impairs your cognitive abilities, it impairs your physical abilities, and it impedes or impairs moral judgment, which, which might be the worst of the three. And, and intoxication through marijuana demonstrably does all three of those things. And so, I don't think it's responsible just to substitute marijuana every time you see the word wine and say, you know, well, it says not to get drunk, therefore we, we can't use marijuana. I, I think we have to do a little bit better work than that, thinking about uh, how alcohol works, how marijuana works, what, where, where the similarities lie, and then why does God forbid drunkenness? And then, okay, intoxication through marijuana, the marijuana high, does all three of those things. And so, therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable binding conscience of, 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 of Christians uh, by saying you ought not to get high uh, because it is intoxication, and the Bible forbids such things. I hope you don't mind me going off script here. You just remind no, me uh, really of a really cool point that you made in the book. You know, God makes these great creations, and you say that you believe that alcohol is a, a generous gift from a good God, and even marijuana is a generous gift from a good God, and someone may scratch their head and say, well, what is he saying? But you make the point about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God created that, it had a purpose, Mankind misused that. Adam and Eve did not use that tree as God intended. Can you talk a little bit about how, about that point, which I think is fascinating? Yeah, well, so, so, so God in, in Genesis 1 and 2 is definitely the, the generous God. He is uh, benevolent. He's not stingy at, at all, right? He gives good things. He, he, he gives to Adam and Eve every tree except for one 
<laughs> except for one. And, and of course, um, it, it's interesting that, that Satan's lie was that, you know, God's holding back. When the whole Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 narrative is that this is not a God who holds back uh, at, at all, right? Um, and, 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 and then, uh, yeah, I, I do find it fascinating that, that the very first sin in, did involve the use of a plant. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how far we want to take that, but, uh, but, 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 you know, there it is. Uh, you know, so many of God's greatest gifts can be misused, and it almost feels like the greater the gift, the more harm that can come. I, I mean, I, I sound like Uncle Ben with, with Spider-Man here with Peter Parker, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Uh, you know, sexual intimacy is an incredible gift, from a good, kind God, but it has to be used appropriately as God designed it to be used. Otherwise, we bring great destruction upon ourselves. Um, the, the, the scriptures outline, I would say, the, the proper use of, uh, of alcohol. Uh, it, it can be misused mm-hmm. to devastating effect. I mean, quite frankly, I, I think we'd all have to agree that, that alcohol has had more destructive uh, impact upon society than than, than any other drug has, right? I'm not arguing for its prohibition. I'm just saying, hey, we have to use it responsibly. Um, well, now there's even more psychoactive drugs out there. Um, and there are no doubt great benefits to, to, to them. Um, I, I do believe that cannabis is a generous gift from a good God, but it has to be used responsibly. Otherwise, we're going to bring great destruction upon ourselves. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Do you see a difference between recreational use and therapeutic use of marijuana? Yes, I, I, I do. Uh, not because the substance is different. Uh, the plant is the same. It, it, if if you have, you know, it, if you're in a state where they still issue medical marijuana cards, and you go to a cannabis dispensary, you're going to be standing in the same line, buying at the same table from the same stash of, of, of marijuana, right? There's no difference in the plant. You know, there's no special section that's the medical marijuana, and, and then there's the recreational marijuana someplace else. That, that's, that, that's just not the case. Uh, the difference does lie in the use. Um, now, people smoke pot recreationally for a number of reasons, but, but I think the number one reason why people smoke pot recreationally is to get high, right? To, to, to have that, that rush of dopamine, that, 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 that pleasure inducing chemical uh, in our brain. Um, that, that's, that's why they do it. I, I tell the story in the book about, uh, about going into a cannabis dispensary and just asking some questions. And they were super kind and polite as, as I, as I talked to them. And, uh, and, and then I asked them almost sheepishly, is, is there any reason to smoke pot other than to get high recreationally? And, and and the clerk just laughed at me. It's like, no, of course not. Now, I know the minute I say that, people are going to say, yeah, but it, it helps me with my ADHD. It helps me with my nerves. It helps me relax at night, all, all this sort of thing. Okay, that, that's, I, I get that. I'll, I'll, I'll concede that. But at that point, you're using it medically. You're not using it recreationally. Uh, you're, you're just self-medicating. Um, and, and I think there are therapeutic uses for the cannabis plant. Um, now, my concern is, are you self-medicating or are you uh, doing it with accountability? Is, is a doctor prescribing it? You know, th- th- there are a number of cannabis-based, FDA-approved drugs uh, for, for nausea, for appetite. Um, there, there's, uh, 
there's a, 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 a number of drugs uh, with, that are based upon CBD, which is another component of the uh, cannabis plant that have been very, very helpful. And then there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there about all the wonderful things that, uh, that, that the cannabis plant does. And it, it, it's basically in, in the promotional literature, a panacea. It cures everything. I, I, I get people shooting emails saying, hey, cannabis cured my dad of cancer. I used to have Parkinson's. Now I don't because I smoke pot and, and all this. And, and I just say, boy, the, the, I, 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 I hope that's the case. I wish that were the case that the pot cured cancer, uh, cured Parkinson's, cured glaucoma, cured Crohn's disease. Cure, I mean, it's just, the list goes on and on. But but the clinical evidence is way, way, way behind uh, any sort of anecdotes like that. Um, my concern is that if you're using it medically, all of the risks, and there are many more risks to marijuana uh, that, that I didn't mention, all of those risks are still there, regardless of whether using it medically or, or recreationally. Um, and so you need to be aware of those so you make good decisions. And, and, and I, as an elder in a church, I would be concerned with someone who came to me and said, hey, I, I drink a glass of wine every night in order to unwind. Um, it's like, wow, so you're drinking alone and, and you have to drink alcohol in order to go to sleep. Well, um, <laughs> let's talk about this. There, there, there might be something more going in and, and, and we could lean into that from a discipleship standpoint. Um, and so if, if that's the case with alcohol, then, then it would certainly be the case for me with, with marijuana. Um, I would at least, at least encourage accountability and bringing it out into the open um, with, with trusted members of the church, uh, church leadership and say, so that they can, can do what they're supposed to do, which is to uh, uh, help encourage and, and guard your soul as those who one day will give an account for you. Exactly. Now, Dr. Miles, you suggest the question of medical marijuana could be prompting Christians to think biblically when it comes to prescription drug use more generally. Curious what makes you say that? Yeah, well, because uh, medical marijuana is being recommended, if not prescribed, by the occasional doctor. It's certainly being recommended by family and, and friends uh, and, and all the popular literature that, that, that's out there. Um, but there's still, for many Christians, a stigma attached to marijuana use. And so they think, wow, okay, even though it was recommended by a doctor and it's supposed to have all these benefits, should I really be smoking pot? Is, is, is that a good thing? Um, well, I think that's a good question to ask. Uh, we, we, we should ask those questions. Maybe we should have been asking those questions about a lot of different medications as well. Uh, we're in the middle of an opioid addiction epidemic. Mm -hmm. Opioid overdose deaths spiked during the uh, COVID lockdowns of the last couple of years. Uh, most of the people who are addicted to opioids did not become addicted because they were, you know, out scrounging on the streets, just, just, just hoping for some sort of opioid-induced high. No, uh, they were prescribed by a doctor that they trusted for, for good reasons. I mean, opioids are really effective at, at, at fighting pain. Um, and then they started using them to control their chronic pain, not just their acute pain. 
And the result is a lot of Christians in, in every church, probably. I mean, if, if, you, if you're part of a church that has 100 to 200 people, there's probably someone there who is struggling with opioid dependence. What if we would have been asking the question, okay, even though this was prescribed, what are the risks? Is this the right thing to do before the Lord? Um, is there a better way to deal with my chronic pain, especially? Again, I have no issues with opioids for acute pain, but but opioid use for chronic pain is very, very dangerous because opioids are so addictive, mm-hmm. way more addictive than, than, than cannabis is. Um, what if we would have been asking the kind of questions that we're asking about marijuana? What if we would have been asking those about op- opioids? I, I think some people would be in a much better place right now. I agree. Dr. Todd Miles, seminary professor and author of the book Cannabis and the Christian, available on Audible and Amazon, among other places. We'll be sure to include the links to all that in the description of this video. Thank you so much for calling in to discuss this incredibly relevant topic. Uh, You're very welcome. Thank you. An advocacy group based here in the United States called Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting, also referred to as DAFO, is calling on the United Nations to act against China harvesting organs from prisoners of conscience, or enemies of the Chinese state due to their ethnic background or religious beliefs. DAFO would like this investigated like any other charge of crimes against humanity. The Epic Times originally published an article about this that got my attention, and so I started to dig a little just to see how much information is out there on this and who's really out there addressing the problem. For transparency's sake, all the articles used for this report will be linked to in the description of this video, and we highly encourage you to check all that stuff out for yourself and to do your own research, as there's a lot more out there about what we're talking about. To begin with, though, we should really understand the problem. China has a thriving organ donation market, and critics are crying foul when looking at the numbers. According to the Epic Times article, a 2016 report by human rights lawyer David Kilgore and investigative journalist Ethan Gutman said, Beijing reported 10,000 transplants, while the actual number is between 60 and 100,000. China explains all this away by saying they have many volunteer donors, while at the same time having a low demand for transplanted organs. China also says it relies on its national organ donation system. But the London-based People's Tribunal published a report concluding forced harvesting was happening on a significant scale and that Fa Long Gong practitioners were the main source of the organs. Fa Long Gong is an umbrella term that covers a number of practices involving meditation, purposeful breathing, and slow-moving exercises. It was outlawed in China in 1999. The tribunal report concluded most organs came from Fa Long Gong followers, while the remaining came from other prisoners of conscience, including Christians, Muslims, and Tibetans. The Office of the United Nations Human Rights of the High Commissioner released a statement saying they received credible information that minorities and prisoners of conscience in China were the victims of forced organ transplantation by the Chinese state, with hearts, kidneys, livers, and corneas being the most commonly harvested organs. United Nations human rights experts confronted the Chinese government back in 2006 and 2007, but the response lacked critical data like waiting times and information on organ sources. They've effectively blocked any way of knowing what's really going on. 
Now, last year, a professor of clinical ethics at a university in Australia did an interview on this topic, which again will be linked to in the description, so definitely check that out. But I want to bring up a couple points she discussed. What about the ethical obligations of a doctor when their patients present after a questionable organ transplant procedure? And what about the surgeons who perform these procedures and the people who get them? Certainly they know what's going on. While there is somewhat of an expectation that academics and physicians have a responsibility to recognize and fight forced organ harvesting, it's explained there's also an understanding in medicine that anyone and everyone deserves care, regardless of how that care came to become necessary. Further, more than two-thirds of 540 physicians surveyed admitted to traveling overseas to support a transplant patient at least once. So what about the patients getting these questionable transplants? Well, some understand they're receiving the organ of a convicted felon sentenced to death. Physicians performing these procedures see this as a benefit coming from an enemy of the Chinese communist state that would otherwise be put to death. So everyone here has a very good, or so they think, very good reason for doing what it is they're doing, but it's all based on lies. So what can be done? What can we as Christians do to affect change when it comes to forced organ harvesting, which is a specific type of murder that indeed is a crime against humanity? Well, for starters, we can know about it. We can talk about it with our friends and family and other believers. We can investigate it and align ourselves with organizations who are fighting it. Now, I've done a bit of research and have listed a few organizations in the description to get you started, but most importantly, you can begin to incorporate this topic into your prayer life. Much like high-level topics like human trafficking and the sexual exploitation of the vulnerable, we should be praying for an end to this without ceasing until the time when forced organ harvesting is no longer a reality. All right, folks, that wraps up our show for you today. And whether you watch the show on YouTube or Vimeo or listen to it on Spotify or another audio podcast platform, you can always, always, always watch the show on our main website, kcn.dekeev.com. Thanks again for watching, everyone, or listening. We'll do it all over again next week.